And now we're going to turn to hear our Father's Word, as found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Uh, Frequent attenders here at the church, your Bible should start opening to this text as we keep turning to the book of Ephesians. And as you're turning there, so many people have told me that they're finding it hard to memorize the entire first three chapters of Ephesians. So they have asked, can we have a B track? And I said, well, sure, sure. So I'm going to be putting in the worship folder, as I have at the bottom of my uh, little article that I wrote, at least one verse that I would like each of us to memorize. And many of you may want to continue to join me in memorizing the whole. This week it will be verse 17. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That would be a good verse to memorize. Many of you memorize it all. Let's stand because we are going to be remembering that we are hearing the word of the maker of heaven and earth and the lover of our souls. Verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And this prayer is indeed the word of God. Thanks be to God. This is a prayer. But I must ask you, have you ever heard someone in church pray like this for other church people? You know, I've been a churchgoer for a long time, a pastor, so I've been in church a lot. (laughs) I've heard and, and, and done thousands of prayers. But I have to tell you, when I read this and began studying it, I began thinking, I have rarely heard a prayer like this one. I think with humility, I have to say, I don't think I pray this way often enough for you as part of this church, but I've made a commitment to do so. A prayer like this, it seems to me, if we believe and are directed by the scripture, should be the way that God people, God's people pray for one another. And yet, why is it that at least I have rarely heard a Christian pray like this for other believers? Now, let's get back into this. This was written back in the first century. You have to remember that Paul was writing to a group of churches in and around Ephesus. 
he knew some of them. He didn't know all of them. Uh, but the, these Christians were not going through easy times. If we sometimes think people in our day are going through tough times, think about these Christians back there in Ephesus. Sometimes we complain about our government, don't we? But this was the most violently anti-Christian government, perhaps in the history of the world. Christians were being slaughtered. Uh, Christians were, uh, were a small, persecuted minority. They are living in that world. Many of them had lost their occupations, uh, their homes because of their faith in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, hearing about them, wants to pray for them. But one of the things that strikes me is that he doesn't pray the way that usually I have heard us pray for people going through tough times. Do you notice he doesn't pray that God would change the emperor? Well, I think most of us would think we need an emperor change around here. He doesn't pray that God would protect them, not in first rank, against the soldiers who might come and destroy their homes and put them in prison. He doesn't even pray in first rank for daily bread. Now, now you're with me here, aren't you? I'm not saying that we should not pray for those things. I'm not saying that. And I'm telling you, when people are hurting, we need to pray for one another about those kinds of things. In fact, Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, specifically tells us that there are times we need to pray for daily bread. And there's at least one place in 1 Timothy in which the Apostle Paul says, when you're living there in this world, pray for those in government. So, I mean, that is to be a part of our prayer. But... Having said that, when we're going through tough times, every time I look in the New Testament and see a prayer like this one from the, the Apostle Paul, where he has to pray with passion and love for his people, he doesn't pray for temporary things. The priority of his prayer is that in the midst of those things that happen in this world, that we will experience something that can never be taken away. I've, you've been following the news this past week in the midst of a world in which we are filled with financial instability. We need to have something that's stable. We call them securities. What a ridiculous thought. Is there anything less secure than what we call securities? We need something secure in the midst of an insecure world. We need something that in those moments when it feels like everything is being taken away, relationships are falling apart, people are hurting, that we can hold on to. That, that will be an eternal refuge and strength. And so what does the Apostle Paul pray for people that he cares about? He prays for something that can never be shaken. He, he, he prays about a love that can never be lost. He prays for something that will sustain us in the midst of a world in which we need sustenance. He prays first that we will simply know God better. And second, that we will always know the riches of what he has given us as a family. And I want us to think about those in just a few moments that we have as we gather here this morning. Now, the, where, the, where I want to begin is here. Uh, I've, I've thought about this and I thought, I want to make sure that those who come to Lake Avenue Church, that you actually know that you're in this family. You know, we're calling this series the unexpected family of God. We started in chapter one. We talked about the fact that before the creation of the world, our heavenly father had a plan that he said he is going to bring about in this world. What was that plan? 
in the midst of a divided and hurting world, he was going to plant a family, a family made up of every tribe and language and nation, unexpected people. It would be an adopted family. So at first we wouldn't look very much like one another, but more and more we're going to start looking like our family, a father. And until he's done, when he is done, we are going to be holy and blameless in his sight. The world should look at this family and say, that's what I need. The world should look at this family and as we worship and serve together, say, that's what God is like. It's gracious, merciful, loving. He is good. Now, I want to make sure that you are in that family. How, how can you know? Look at verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says, for this reason, I'm going to pray for those in Ephesus. Some of you, I know, but I've heard about all of you. And there are two things that he had heard about them. Do you notice it there? Two things he'd heard about them that assured him that these people were actually brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, what were they? Number one, he had heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus. And number two, he had heard about their love for all the saints. Now, I want you to notice what the first thing is. How can you know whether you're in the family of God? Well, God alone knows for sure. Uh, we, we can sort of make judgments about one another. But the reality is there are tests that God gives us that we can sort of anchor this to make sure that I am actually a part of this family. Number one is this one. It's what we believe. I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, those who go to Lake Avenue often, this doesn't surprise you. Uh, and in fact, as you look at earlier in, in chapter one, he had talked about Jews coming into the family in Christ through faith in Christ. And those who are not Jewish people, verse 13, you also are included in Christ. When you heard this word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. So that's where it starts. Recognizing that we have fallen short, recognizing that our lives aren't what they should be, recognizing we need forgiveness, someone to rescue us. And we simply come and say, here is my life. As much as, or little as I understand, I believe in the Lord Jesus. I have heard about your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is countercultural for Southern Californians. You know that? Here in the 21st century, we live in a world in which people say it doesn't matter so much what you believe. What really matters is just how you live. Uh, and the Bible is turning to us and saying, no, no, no. Uh, where it starts is in what you believe. You know, we, we like to think that everyone can sort of be spiritual. And the way that we can know they're spiritual is simply by looking at what they do. And the Bible says, no, what you do will never quite be good enough. God is perfect, holy. He is blameless. You and I are not. And so you and I are not ready to stand in the presence of a holy and blameless God. So it starts in us trusting in, believing in what he has done on our behalf. Now, years ago, people used to think that you can know a Christian by that person doing certain religious things, even like showing up at church. And I, I do hope that Christians will show up at church. I'm sure glad that you're here today. But I want you to know there are a lot of people who can do religious things that even show up in a church and may not really be in the family of God, may still be counting on our own activity and our own strength. You know, I grew up in the South. I had an old Southern preacher who once says, you know, just because you put a box in a garage, it doesn't turn it into a car. 
So just because you and I walk in to a, to a, to a worship center like this doesn't turn us in to family members in Christ. No, God says this is the beginning. And through the scriptures, it's reinforced with faith. It is faith. And faith specifically directed, not, not just faith in anything. It is faith, you see it, in Jesus Christ. The only one who came, who was without sin, the only one who gave his sinless life on behalf of sinless people, so that all who trust him, all who are in him, are declared by God himself to be forgiven and in the family. Having believed, you were brought into this this unexpected family of God. Pastor Tim Keller from uh, Manhattan one time said something that I I like very much. He said, if you think that the way to find God is to come to church and try to live in a certain way, then you're actually showing that you have no faith in the Lord Jesus at all. Your faith is in yourself. Do you see that? The world tries to tell us if, if you try to become loving or show justice and mercy, then you must be a good religious person in God's family. And, and the Bible keeps turning to us and saying, as hard as we may try, we'll still fall short. We need to be rescued. We need to be forgiven. So entering into the family of God begins so simply with this faith, trust in the Lord Jesus. That's first test is your trust in him. And then the second When you trust the Lord Jesus, uh, he forgives you of your sin. But as I mentioned last week, he doesn't leave us there. God gives his spirit to us and he begins working in our lives. And he says he won't stop until we are holy and blameless in his sight, until we start looking like the father. And if you look and say, where does he begin? How can I be sure as I look at my life that God is at work within me? He says, this is where it is. You're going to have a love for all the saints. All right, what is a saint? <laughs> um, do you know that New Testament doesn't use that word the way we usually use it? We have a lot of people here at the church who have Catholic backgrounds. And so a saint is usually that very, very special person who's been canonized by the church. A Saint Patrick, uh, a Mother Teresa. And if that's, those are the only people we have to love, we say, okay, I'll love the good ones. But, but I want you to know the Bible uses this word much more broadly than that. Now, now, in just the average person here in Southern California, when we use saints, it's usually something like this. Uh, a husband saying about his wife, well, you know, I just, I just married a saint. Well, and of course I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and John, you did too, right? And by that, we mean, of course, this special person who's a whole lot better than I am. And a couple of us, we were in what I call the married up club. We married much better than we are. And yet I want you to know that it's not just those specially good and wonderful people who are called saints. Do you know who saints are in the Bible? It simply means those who are set apart to be in the family of God. Ephesians 1.1 talks about this is being written to the saints there in Ephesus. It's anybody who has trusted Christ Jesus. Uh, frail, uh, weak. Sometimes troublesome people who have fallen on the mercy of God and have been adopted through faith into the family of God. And he says it's through your love for just a few of those people that you know that you're a follower of Jesus. Now, I want you to look at that again. Just look at the scriptures. It is love for all 
the saints. And that all is made up sometimes of people that it, naturally we wouldn't be drawn to all that much. And before we're done, that all is going to be made up of people from every nation and every people group and every language. It, it, it is for all God's people. Now, now you're with me. Let me talk to you about how you and I as human beings usually deal with one another that's led to us having such a divided world. Um, usually we, before becoming followers of Jesus, identify ourselves in a certain way. I don't know how you identify yourself. Sometimes it's according to ethnicity, skin color. Sometimes it's profession. Sometimes that's our main idea, identity. Sometimes it's our educational level, amount of money that we have. Sometimes it's our political affiliation. Sometimes it's a USC fan versus a UCLA fan. <laughs> you, you see what? See, I'm meddling right now, right? Um, what happens is we identify ourselves in that certain way and then people who are different from us, we don't want to be with them. We avoid them, hold them at arm's length, and sometimes even persecute them. And then we come to, to the cross and we realize that we should never be proud. That even those things about us, even though they may be true, one thing unites us all and that is that none of us in and of ourselves are worthy to stand in front of God and we need forgiveness. And then when we become Christians, all of us have said, here is my life. Will you receive me? And what does God say? I will take your sins in your life and I'll cast those sins as far as east is from the west. And I will bring you into my family. What happens in this? That God starts helping us to see as he sees. And let me tell you this. One of the surest ways to know that you are a follower of Jesus is that those people that you once held at arm's length, you begin finding yourself drawn to them, respecting them, and even loving them. Have you ever experienced that? A person maybe who comes from a different country, uh, you've never met them before, and then you spend a little time and you find out this is a brother or sister in Christ. And you love, have you experienced that? If you have, that is an evidence that you belong to him because one of the surest evidences that you and I are in the family is that we have a love for all the saints. A love, not just a tolerance of. A real and genuine love that manifests itself in us loving to be with one another, share with one another, encourage one another, correct one another until we show this world what God is like. We bring glory to his name. Those are the two evidences. I want you to ask yourself those things about yourself. Is your faith in Christ Jesus? And, and you start seeing this happening in your life, a love for all of God's people. If so, I want to pray for you. What is that prayer like? There's several parts. I have to go just quickly. Number one, in verse 17, a prayer for people that you love is that those people will know God better. Will know God better. Do you see it? I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, our, our glorious Father, I, I, I am praying that he will give you, and these are two important words, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. I, I, I want to pray that he will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you'll know him better. Um, I thought how to get at this quickly. Maybe this. A few weeks ago... I drew upon chapter 1, verse 4, and talked about this being an adopted family. So try to picture yourself being a young, 
uh, orphan child. Maybe six years old. That's going to be really hard for some of us, isn't it? And yet you've been in that orphanage your whole life. You've never experienced unconditional love. You have heard, you, you've been rejected many times. And then you've seen this wonderful, gentle, loving person comes into the orphanage. And soon you hear that that person comes and wants to adopt you because she loved you when she met you. Now, as a six-year-old child, what do you do? You say, wait a minute, I have a few questions here. I first want to find out what the family's personal assets are. And second, your political affiliations. Are you red and blue? Or are you sort of in between purple? Chuck, are you a USC fan or UCLA fan? Well, would, the, would the little girl do that? The answer is no. <laughs> in case you're wondering what the answer is. She will run into that loving mother's arms and be so thankful she's in the family. Isn't that what we did? When we first heard about the love of God for us, that he loved us so much he gave his one and only son and is ready to receive us, we ran in and we couldn't believe that we belonged to him. But that little girl, when she first walks into that family, doesn't know much about that family, does she? And the the younger she is, the less she knows. Maybe some smells, some sights, a few little things. But as she lives in the family, she comes to know that family better. How? Sometimes through what the family tells her about themselves. And sometimes it's just by living life, isn't it? Just by living life, you're with them, you see how people react, and suddenly you you enter, even on a human plane. Isn't that how we know people? We tell people about ourselves, and as we experience life together, we get to, to, to know one another. And sometimes, even when we've known people a long time, uh, married to them, there are children. But we surprise one another. We learn something new about one another. If that's true on a human plane, let me tell you, it's infinitely more true when it comes to God. Uh, and the prayer is that as you come first into a relationship with God through faith, that you will know Him better. You need a spirit of wisdom, probably talking about what He has revealed in His Word about Himself, a spirit of revelation, that as you live life with Him, He'll open your eyes. To seeing what he's like. And I'll tell you more and more. This has become my prayer for us as we gather. That as we gather in this place. We will see our father with new eyes. And know him better. Because I think when we know him. We'll know more and more. How powerful he is. How loving he is. How wonderful he is. The second part of the prayer. I pray too. That in knowing him. You'll know the hope to which he's called us. Notice how he puts there in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You know what that's talking about? That's a good Jewish phrase. Uh, That means there are certain things you can't really see in this world with your physical eyes. So I hope your inner being is going to be opened up so that you can understand some things that you otherwise would never know. I pray that when you walk into this church and you're in this family, the eyes of your heart, your inner being will be opened to know what? To know the hope to which he has called us. To know the hope to which he's called us. Let's go back to that illustration of the adopted child. What if, uh, after she goes to the home, she finds out, kind of like little orphan Annie, (laughs) that she has just been adopted into the wealthiest, most influential, and most respected home in the entire town, like Daddy Warbucks was. Then you know that almost anything becomes possible. Now, what I want you to see is that's the kind of family you and I have been adopted into. 
And what he's praying that you and I will know is the hope to which he has called us. Do you see that? This is the idea, if I can just communicate it. It goes back to chapter 1. God wanted you and me and his family. And when he brought us into his family, he had a plan for us. There's something that he wanted to do. It's like being in that family, the little girl saying, I can never become anything because I've never, I've never experienced anything. Nobody's ever told me I could do anything well. And the wealthy family says to her, but we're committed to you. All that we are and all that we have, we're committed to you. We've seen what you can become. And we're going to make a commitment. That's our calling. We're going to make a commitment that we're not going to be done with you until you're all that you can be. And that's what God says. I pray that you'll know that hope. Every time you come into church and you know you failed again last week and you say, there's no hope for me. Every time you go through a difficulty that you say, there's no hope in this situation, that we walk into this place and we hear our Heavenly Father saying, I have hope for you. I am the one who called you. And I will not be done with you until I've completed my work. So that you as individuals and us as a Lake Avenue church are complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. Third prayer. Pray also, and it's a remarkable statement. I've called it to know God's rich inheritance in us. Look at verse 18 again. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, this inheritance, it's getting back to family talk, isn't it? I'm so glad, Chuck, that you're sitting up. Are you going to be here in the 11 o'clock service so I can use you as an illustration again? Do you know that when Chuck had his sabbatical earlier this year, uh, God really did a work in his heart? Isn't it good to know that God still works in the hearts of pastors? During that time that we gave Chuck a a bit of time away, the Spirit of God spoke to him. And I'll have you give your testimony sometime, Chuck. But just showed him the thing that so many of us have come to at some point in our lives. We've lived our lives investing in so many things. And we come to a point when we see that what we lived for before may not be all that important. And we want the rest of our lives to be invested in something that really matters. Have you come to that It usually happens middle age or so. You live for a while and you start seeing things that aren't all that great. And especially those of us who know the Lord, we want our lives really to count. It really is what brought me here to Lake Avenue Church. Uh, After being in, in the academy for a while, I just sensed God had called me to the church. And I wanted this leg to be run, to be invested in God's people and in the preaching and teaching of his word. Well, let's try to take that image. If you think about that, if you really want to have an inheritance, a legacy that you invest yourself in, that you pass on, think about God. Now, God isn't limited like we are. But he says, before the creation of the world, there was something that I said I'm going to invest myself in. Before the creation of the world, I had a plan. And this is what I was going to do. In this hurting world, I was going to establish a family of unexpected, unlikely people. That when this world and when all of the universe looks at this unlikely people... They will know what I am like. This family is going to declare my glory to the universe. This world is going to see my unity, my love, my grace, and my power. Where? In this family. That is my inheritance. And that's what he's talking about. Not not that we have an inheritance, but we are his inheritance. And I'm simply telling you, 
that God is going to invest all he is until we declare his glory, declare his glory among this world. It's an amazing thought. What has God invested in? What did God say is worth doing? Planning a global family and local representatives of that family like the Lake Avenue Church in this hurting world so that there is always hope. And I pray, he says, that you will know the riches of his glorious inheritance among us as his people. Just an amazing statement. Which brings me to the last part of the prayer. I pray also that you will know the power available to us, ready to be working through us. Look at verse 19. And I pray that you will have your eyes open, inner eyes open, so that you will know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Um, I'll tell you what I think when, when I even preach this sermon to you. I, I look in the mirror and I say, I've been a Christian for 50 years and I still see areas that are so flawed. And I think, God, can you really do that? I mean, transform my life to make it what it should be fully, holy. And then I look out at you and say, you, you can do that for these people. Is, is that it? Now, you should be as shocked as I am about that. For all, not just a few of us, but for all of your people. And then think about it, not, not just for us, but, but for the family of God that is gathered all over the world. How is God going to take such frail, fallen people as we are and do his work until we're completing Christ? Can he do it? And so we find Paul say, I want to tell you, he can do it. He, he can do it. And in verse 19, he just piles these four words on top of one another. What is his power like? Well, power. He uses that word. Um, the Greek word is dunamis. Root word for dynamite, except dynamite blows things up. And in the great Greek world, it brought things together. It's just a word for raw energy or power. It's a power working. The Greek word is energeia. It has to do with working inside to bring about something that is a, a metamorphosis, a change in us. It is a mighty power working, kratos, which is a word usually used for the ability to conquer anything. Uh, for armies and militaries conquering any kind of a power. That's what's available. Mighty strength. Ishkus. Uh, it means physical, demonstrable force that people can see. So you see what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to make sure that when we show up at church and really wonder if my life can be different tomorrow from what it was yesterday. He says, the power of God is sufficient for anything. The grace of God is greater than your, than your sins. And the ability of the Holy Spirit to make you holy is greater than your sinfulness. He can and will do it. Now, the rest of this, so that goes from verses 19 to 23. I kind of picture the Apostle Paul being in a church, maybe a little different from the Lake Avenue uh, 9 o'clock service. I picture people kind of talking back to him, kind of talking back to him, saying, yes, but, yes, but. So I've tried to put it together this way. If, if I turn to you and say, listen. The grace of God is enough to, to take your sins away and to have tomorrow be different from yesterday until you and I are holy and blameless in his sight. And not just one of us, but the whole family. You might say something like this, but, but, but the problems in this world are so great. Does God really have the power to deal with the things I deal with? 
And Paul answers back as you come into verse 20. Wait a minute. The greatest enemy that this world can possibly throw at us is death. And the power available to overcome death has already been demonstrated in this world. For the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we believe defeated death by his resurrection. But, 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 you say. Um, that happened so long ago. That happened so long ago. Is that power still available here in 21st century Southern California? And Paul says, of course it is. Because Jesus didn't die on the cross and he wasn't risen from the dead so that he could go on vacation in Maui. He is, as he says, seated at the right hand of the Father. And in Semitic languages, in Hebrew languages, the right hand is the place of authority, of strength over everything. That's where the one who defeated death by his resurrection is seated and is at work on our behalf. But, 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 I can hear them say, it's, it's not just us. There are evil powers in this world. There's systemic evil. Haven't you been following the news? There's economic collapse. There are military governments that just ruin everything. What can he possibly do about that? And the answer is found in verses 20 to 22. Listen to me, he says. God seated Jesus at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Where he is as far above all rule and authority. Yes, all power and dominion. Above every title that can be given. And in case you're wondering, it's not just in this present age, but in the one to come. God has placed all things under his feet. And still you might say, but, 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 how can I be sure that this power of God is available to me? Look at verse 19. This incomparable great power is specifically for whom? I just want you to see this in scripture. This incomparably great power is for whom? It is for us who believe. And this Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father over every power and dominion, he is the head of this church and of the global church. And in fact, just as a head needs a body, he has said, I will have you to be my body, being my extension through whom my power will flow. Until the people of this world know that I am. And know that if their faith is in me. There is always good news. And there is always hope. I want to learn to pray this way for you. More and more all week as I have thought about you coming. And agonized over how to preach this sermon. I've been praying this message for you. As I hear about so many of us here. Uh, losing our jobs, hearing so much that here too, like everywhere else, there are frayed and broken relationships. As we go through times of mourning and loss, I pray that you will know God better. I pray you'll always know the hope. You never have to give up. The hope for He has called you. He wants you. And, and, and so he's going to invest all he is in you, the hope of his rich inheritance in and among us, and the hope that is always there 
Because I'm telling you, this is an incomparably great power that is available to all who believe. Thank you, our Lord, to your glory. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to walk through a a bit of a prayer. You might even want to, if you can, take out the prayer benches, the kneeling benches there in front of you. And let's have just a few moments of prayer with one another. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we as this local part of your family gather here in your presence. Father, we want to pray for one another. Father, I I pray for each one who is here in the sanctuary this morning. That you would give to us an assurance that we are in your family. If there are some who have come and are unsure. Father, use this moment to help them anchor that. That they may know that their faith is in you. So that very simply there may be some who will have this to be their day of first faith. For some who understand so little, Father, help them simply now to say, Father, I don't understand it all, but here is my sin. Will you take it? Here is my life. I want to follow Jesus. Let's pray for one another that perhaps God would draw people to himself even now. And then, Father, do your work through your Holy Spirit in us. You've told us that one of the surest evidences that we're in the family is that we'll have love for one another, for all of your people. Open our eyes to those that we may be holding at arm's length. Help us to see as you see. Forgive us when we have not loved. Do your work in our hearts. Then our Father, continue to teach us through your word, your wisdom. Open our hearts even now that we may know you better. And in knowing you, Father, open the eyes of our hearts that those who may feel hopeless may now know that because of you there is always hope. For those who have been hurting because of loss or failure, Help us to know, Father, that you are not done with us. That your love continues on. And, Father, where we have doubt, remind us of your incomparably great power for us who believe. So that we will be able to leave this place knowing that tomorrow can be different because of you and to your glory. In Jesus' name.